0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, here it is, Labor Day Monday, and I'm sure a lot of us are feeling like time has just flown by this summer, as in where did it all go? And now for a lot of kids out there in particular, the next few days back in a classroom are going to drag on, or at least they're going to feel like they are dragging on. So why does time behave like that? Why does it seem to speed up or slow down? Is it just us? Well, Dr. Sean Carroll is the Homewood Professor of Natural Philosophy at Johns Hopkins University and is with us to talk about that this morning. Uh, Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on. Well, it seems very kind of existential to talk about this at this hour of the morning, Dr. Carroll. So, so thank you for being here. But do we, do we imagine time? Like, Does it really speed up or slow down?
2: You know, people have different opinions about this, interestingly enough, but my way of saying it is that time is real. It honestly exists. We experience it differently and we experience it differently both as a matter of physics that came from Albert Einstein 100 years ago and of course also psychologically, right? We have things going on in our bodies and our brains that do in fact speed up or slow down compared to the rest of the universe.
1: So if we are having one of those hours where it feels like time is dragging out, let's say we're stuck in a meeting, right, which is going on forever. Are there Mm -hmm. things that we can do to speed up our perception of time?
2: There are, but I don't know if I would recommend them necessarily. When we think that time is slowing down, it's usually because we're not getting novel stimulus, right? We're not seeing or hearing or thinking about anything different from what we did before. For example, you might think that. These days, at a certain age of your life, the summers go by more quickly, like you just said, compared to when you were a kid. That's because when you were a kid, everything was new, right? You were constantly experiencing new things, and you were developing all these memories and storing them, and it seemed like it took a lot of time. When things are the same over and over again, then it, things compress. The moment that you're there, it seems like it's taken forever, and afterward, you can't even remember what happened.
1: So is there a measurement though, like how does, how is time treated in physics?
2: In physics, we talk about the relationship between different things. So we talk about how many times the Earth rotates around its axis versus how many times it revolves around the sun, to define a day versus a year, right? One way of thinking about measuring time is that there's a whole bunch of things in the universe that repeat themselves. They go back and forth, like the Earth rotating. It returns to where it started, and they do so in predictable, reliable ways, and then Anything that does that is a clock. And so the universe is full of clocks that are all more or less reliable compared to each other. And then we can think about what are the more reliable ones, what are the less reliable ones.
1: So there's time as we measure it in physics. And then there is our perception of time.
2: Yeah, and we know a lot more about time as we measure it in physics than we do about our perception of time. Human beings are way more complicated than the physical world. In physics, we can always simplify things down, right? We can talk about a pendulum rocking back and forth or the sand running down in an hourglass. And in very simple situations, we can solve everything exactly. That's the miracle of physics that someone like Einstein can give us an equation. And 100 years later, that equation is still true and still predicting things that Einstein himself never imagined and that's how we are able to understand time at the level of physics at the level of psychology or neuroscience or biology there's an enormous amount we still have to learn about our perception of time from moment to moment our perception of time over years how we age how we metabolize these are all fascinating topics that researchers are still digging into
1: That is So so really the humans, we are the kind of X factor in all this.
2: Well, complex systems are always harder to think about than simple systems. And the thing about physics is you can simplify what you look at. You can say, all right, I'm going to drop an object off of a – tall building, but I'm going to ignore air resistance to calculate how fast it will fall. And that's fine if you're dropping a rock. It's terrible if you're dropping a piece of paper, right? So physics is able to make progress by first looking at very, very simplified situations that might not be realistic and then putting in the complications later. When you have a human being or any other biological system or, for that matter, any super-duper complex system like the ecosphere or the galaxy that we live in, there you can't ignore the complications. The complications are kind of what matter and make it rich and interesting. That's why physics is the simplest science, honestly.
1: I'm sorry. What? How is physics the simplest (laughs) science? That has not been my experience with physics, Dr. Carroll.
2: This is the paradox because physics seems challenging to us precisely because physicists are able to make enormous progress because it's simple. So it's not like we're spending research dollars right now studying balls rolling down inclined planes or ice skaters pulling in their arms or anything like that. We, we've figured that stuff out. And we've pushed the frontiers of knowledge into cosmology and the Big Bang and particle physics and all this weird stuff where, of course, it's way outside our everyday experience. So it seems strange and forbidding to us.
1: Okay. So then where are the big mysteries in physics? If we have figured out the simple things, what do physicists still wonder about?
2: I think the two big things that physicists are still wondering about are what happens at very, very, very small scales – inside an atom inside a nucleus inside a proton right that's why we build giant particle accelerators to try to figure out the laws of fundamental particle physics that make the universe go we have a wonderful theory with a very boring name of the standard model of particle physics but we don't think it's the final answer we're still looking for a better theory beyond that and the other Frontier is the universe as a whole, the Big Bang, what's out there in the universe, dark matter, dark energy, what happened at the beginning, what will happen at the end. These are huge questions where we've actually made some progress, but there's still a long way to go.
1: So is it fair to say then, like, we can measure time if we can turn it into kind of that, the mathematical aspect of it in the universe, right? We can write an equation that measures time. But when it comes to humans, well, we're a little bit more subjective. You can't necessarily write an equation about how humans perceive things.
2: I think that's exactly right. You know, humans are subjective. They have the a feature that rocket ships and electrons don't, which is that they have their own perceptions of the world, right? So as an external person, you can see what a, what someone does, you know, a famous Olympic sprinter, you can time them, but it's much harder to figure out what's going on in their minds as they experience this run or this race that they're in or whatever. And that that subjectivity, you know, we can't just put in a little meter and figure out what thoughts are going on in people's heads. So that makes it hard to collect the data. Yeah, it's probably for the best, honestly.
1: (laughs) Do you ever have those moments where you're thinking, oh, my goodness, this is dragging on forever, where time is really slow for you? And if that happens, what do you tell yourself?
2: All the time, <laughs> to be honest. You know, the word time is the most used word in the English language, the most used noun, I should say, because it's everywhere. You know, you when we – organized this talk on the radio, we had to say what time it would be at. The concept of time is absolutely central to how we organize our lives. And yet we're still not completely good at mastering, you know, making sure we experience the right amount of time. You know, this movie seems to be dragging on. Other times we're having a great time, and it seems to go by very, very quickly. I I suspect there's nothing we will ever do to fix that. I think that's just part of the human experience.
1: Unless you can write a mathematical equation about it.
2: I can't do that yet, but I would let you know.
1: Please do. (laughs) We'll have you back on the show. Dr. Carroll, thanks for your time.
2: Thanks very much for having me. That was
1: fascinating. That's Dr. Sean Carroll, Homewood Professor of Natural Philosophy at Johns Hopkins University, talking about the passage of time. That is so true about about well, us, about humans, right? We are subjective, so we experience time differently, even though time itself can be written as an equation. We can measure it in a scientific fashion, not necessarily though in our minds. This week is a good week to talk about that because I know a lot of people are thinking the fun times, the fast fun times of summer are over as kids, parents, teachers, everybody heading back to school this week. And we'll be talking more about that. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi like I haven't talked to him in forever, but our contributor Scott Schatz is with us this morning. Hi, Scott. Hi,
3: I feel the same way, Simi. I'm so excited to be here with you this morning. This is great.
1: I also forgot about
3: how cheery you are at this hour of the morning. Right? I thought I was chipper. awesome? And you know what else we have to celebrate is uh, men's Canadian basketball team punching their ticket to the Olympics.
1: Thank you for bringing that up. I I was going to talk about it with Daria and I forgot because I want to give the team the shout
3: out. Oh, yeah.
1: Amazing. They haven't qualified in more than 20 years since the Steve Nash era.
3: Yeah, 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 and it we was a it. tight game too. Yes. This was yesterday. Uh, I was hosting yesterday morning, and we may have had the TV on in the background because it was Just like maybe. it was exciting. They were down by like ten points for a lot of it. How yeah, it was about really that great. Shea
1: Gilgis Alexander, like amazing. Also, a good sign that tells you where where the state of basketball is, like, you know, the Toronto Raptors are coming to town for their preseason game, and they do this, they've done this many times over the years. Yeah, I went to one, actually, back, back when,
3: and it was so great.
1: It's amazing. It's a really great experience. I have gone... Every year when they have come, Scott. Except this year, I couldn't get a ticket.
3: You know what? Some of the tickets the day that they went on sale, the presale tickets I had for that the, game. Pre- I
1: had the pre-sale yeah. code, so I had the ticket, the code for Wednesday. Like tickets, not 2500
3: bucks to buy a ticket couldn't to that it. game. It's a preseason game. Like this, I've been making this argument: bring back the Grizzlies or or a team to that, Vancouver. That we have the was market. A
1: sign to me that things have changed because I've usually had no problem getting a ticket. You know, and this year it was like as fast as I was hitting buy buy buy, it was like the tickets were disappearing, disappearing. And sure, oh, yeah. I could buy them on the resale market, but I'm not going to spend two hundred and fifty bucks a ticket for a, a preseason
3: game. Totally, right? totally.
1: So anyway, great for the Canadian basketball team. Love to see it. And now we're also this morning talking about UFOs.
3: Yeah, this is really cool. The UFO talk has kind of been, um, excuse me, they call them UAP now. That's is, the I'm official sorry, name. We're changing like, the name of UFOs? They call It's called UAP, which stands for Unidentified Anomalous Phenomena. No. I, I don't know exactly why the change, but they've just changed, because I guess you UFO includes like um, hot air balloon or whatever, th- th- various things, but anomalous phenomena, it means like they're being piloted or s- essentially by something, somewhere, someone. So uh, the American government has released a website that has eight videos of what they they call UAPs from a number of years. And the idea behind this website is that people in the military can also submit videos. Civilians can't. We can see it. But people in the military can submit videos and say, hey, I saw something similar, I saw something similar, but they've also made it public, so we can go on and see it, and you know, so people are sharing these videos, here's a little clip from one of them, this is from an F-18 from 2015, so you can hear them talking on the radio, it's just a short clip. There's a whole fleet of them, look on the ASA, oh my gosh, they're all going against the wind, the wind's 120 nice. knots to the west, Oh, hey, dude. That's not our L&S though, is it? It's not. an L&S, dude. Well, if there's like a... Look at thing, thing! It's rotated. So you can tell that these guys don't... It's military people talking about this. Yes, yeah, that they don't really understand what it is they're looking at. But in the video, you know, it's all grayscale, and this is a little black dot in the distance that's kind of moving around and stuff. I don't know, it's not really convincing. But I don't need to be convinced, Simi, because I'm a believer. (laughs) Of course you are. (laughs) What, are you not?
1: No, I, I. it's so funny you say this. I just had this conversation at my house maybe yesterday, sometime this weekend, where I was asked that question, do you think we're alone in the universe? And I said, no, I don't think we are. Because, I mean, how can that be? Of course. Mathematically, that just doesn't make sense to me. Uh, But, you know, if they're coming here and spying on us, like we are their reality show, sure. Okay, great. Yes, I'm sure it's happening out there. Yeah,
3: my, my, my take is that these things are real and that they're coming here. Uh, but I don't I'm not like scared. I don't think they're dangerous because if they've been coming here for years, they could have taken us out a long time ago if they wanted to. They haven't. Uh, they obviously have much better uh, technology and flight capability, uh, you know, so that they can zoom in, check us out and like zoom out. We're not that advanced yet. Uh, another theory, Simi, that I kind of like to what we were talking about just a little bit earlier with time is that the aliens are actually us from the future coming back to tell right, us something. now you're getting carried away <laughs> well it's possible right because we extrapolate time you like go far enough out it's like you can go faster than time if you're going faster than the speed here's, of light allow me to play the devil's advocate on this here's another thing
1: is that maybe this is all just bait and switch like because you ask yourself why is the american government doing this why are they suddenly being so forthcoming where for years they kept the secret is there something else going on that they don't want us to ask about? So they're like, here, totally. look at these UFO videos over here. That thing, Simmy,
3: Bigfoot. Bigfoot. <laughs> right? That's what's next. Once we solve God. the UFO thing, it's gonna be Bigfoot everywhere. All right.
1: Well, thanks for that, Scott. <laughs> Appreciate You're that. Welcome. Scott's a believer,
3: as you could tell. <laughs> he is
1: a real believer. If you would like to weigh in, let's hear from you on that too, simmy at cknw.com. This is Mornings with
0: Simmy.
1: Well, let's talk some of the morning politics now. Rob Shaw joins us now, political correspondent for Czech News. Good morning, Rob. Morning, Simi. Now, first of all, let me start by saying congratulations. You did the ride to conquer cancer.
4: I did. Yeah, that was a lot of lycra that was necessary to pull that <laughs> off, but I, I managed to do it. It was a it was a lot of fun. Seven million dollars this year uh, for the tour to cure was raised, and uh, and yeah. But more importantly, I I went from a non biker. Uh guy who didn't even own a bike six months ago to a to a full-fledged cyclist.
1: Okay, so. this is why I'm so fascinated by this, because I know this about you. I know yeah. that you went from a non-biker. And this was a challenge that was just thrown down to you, and you decided, hey, why the heck not?
4: Well, it was um advanced education minister Selena Robinson, whose uh cancer had come back. Uh, and she I asked if there was anything I could do, and she said, join my tour to cure team. And I said, Sure, yeah, sounds good. And I didn't, I mean I I googled it later, and I was like, "Oh, that, that looks like, like what did I get myself market. into?" Yeah, but you know, it was, it was a nice challenge, something to do over the summer, and and got me out on a bike, and so now I'm just another cliched West Coast cyclist uh, uh-huh. out there on the roads. So, Are
1: you that guy yeah. now?
4: I, I don't know. I think Vaughn's that guy, just in general. But Vaughn uh, on I'm, a bicycle? I don't guy. think so.
1: I don't think Vaughn right. on a bicycle. <laughs> Uh, unless it's the stationary bicycle in his basement that one I can see because he talks about That's that true. one so are you That's are true. you into biking now would you say this is something that is going to stay would you do it again
4: I would yeah but look I don't know what biking's like in the rain so I'm about to learn that and discover that and I don't know how you I mean you need to have a different constitution to keep that going when it's cold and rainy and a whole new set of gears so I'll see if I can see that through I'm not sure I'm a fair weather biker or not, but it was a lot of fun. And uh,
1: yeah, it was good. You're right. The weather makes a huge difference. I once trained to do a marathon um, for the Arthritis Society as a fundraiser, and this is 20 years ago plus we're talking about, but I trained in the winter months. So I trained like September, October, November to do the Honolulu marathon in December. And you know what? All the people that I trained with, like we all had issues because we had trained in this cold, cold weather and then obviously it was not cold when we did the marathon and it was it was so much harder.
4: Did you get hooked on marathons no. after that? No, okay. no, no, Rob, no,
1: no. <laughs> that was a one and done. Oh, when people talk about it, I go, I've done one of those. And I had no desire to do one ever again. You checked it off, off the, the list. bucket list. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. All right, let's talk about what's going on in politics now. Uh, this has been a huge issue for the EB government. It is they're trying to do something for the forestry industry and it doesn't always seem to be working out for them.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's Labor Day, but uh, it's not a happy Labor Day in Crofton at one of the mills uh, or just in general in the forestry sector. I don't know if you remember back in January, but they had a big mill closure in Prince George and the EB government was trying to figure out how to tackle the forestry sector with 300 people laid off. They were under fire for not doing enough. And so they showed up in Crofton to which is this tiny little town uh, south of Nanaimo to announce 18 million dollars in taxpayer funds to help save 100 jobs and and it I mean it looked like a great announcement but the unions behind both of uh two unions behind those 100 jobs came out publicly last week and said you know what the money didn't really save our jobs and we basically have only been in the mill working for a short period of time since January we keep getting curtailed the mill keeps staying. it can't start back up again What is going on here? And so it turns out that the money that you and I and everyone else put in, partly provincial money, partly federal money, didn't actually save those jobs, despite the premier standing around a bunch of people at the time saying, hey, you know, it's going to be great to get these folks back to work. And uh, the government putting out a press release saying 100 jobs uh, you know, will resume. Uh, the, the NDP now says, "Well, what we meant to say, and maybe it wasn't clear at the time, is that it will save 100 jobs when they finish retooling one of the mill lines at the end of 2024. So, a couple of years from now, maybe you know 2025." And so, you, you you kind of what's interesting about it is that it's a little bit of an insight into the EB government and how fast it moves and how quickly it announces things, but how the details can get lost very easily and how messy sometimes it is. And in this case, we've all been talking about 100 jobs saved in Crofton and some moves by the EB government forestry. And it turns out after the circus left town, uh, when the provincial government was there and the premier was there, there were still no chops. And so that's kind of the insight that we're looking right. at uh, in this story.
1: It's like the headline versus what's in the small print.
4: It is. And the government's very good at correcting you if you get it wrong uh, when you're covering a story. But if you get it wrong in their favor, which is everybody covered this as government saves 100 jobs and Crofton starts a new sort of forestry sector practice, um, government doesn't say anything. It just lets the fine print uh, roll by. And so I think it's kind of another example here of, of you know, the larger problems that exist in the forest sector. And if you're working in that sector on Labor Day, you know this well. There are mills curtailing everywhere. There's fiber shortages. There's challenges. There's uh, old growth protections. And the companies are asking the government to come to the table with money to help them survive and retool. And even when the government does, it doesn't guarantee that those jobs really are going to survive. And uh, it's a bit of a, I don't want to say a no win situation for the EB government because uh, I don't. I don't think there's a very large forestry plan from this government that is very robust, but they're trying a little bit right. and even that is not working out.
1: Well, that's what I was going to ask you about though. Haven't we hasn't haven't there been like hints about that for a while now that there is some bigger plan coming?
4: The well, the NDP the current NDP government's forestry plan is an old growth protection plan. That that's basically it. There's not really much of anything beyond you know saving old growth and working with indigenous communities to you know develop uh, forestry options with them that that is the emphasis of government you know cutting down more trees or even cutting down trees at all is not really something that this government is is super keen on and you don't see it out there trying to to drum that up what they're trying to do is sort of Make partnerships with indigenous communities and alter the sector in a way that it's creating different products with the very sort of limited wood that is left and that that seems to be the entire plan for the sector and the company you know this government's had a very contentious relationship with forestry companies it thinks in general that they're large they're greedy, and that they are only out for themselves and not really worth partnering with and John Horgan had that attitude uh, with some of them, and this government kind of has that attitude but it doesn't do the industry any favors with stories like this where they take a bunch of money and everyone thinks it's going to save jobs and it it doesn't actually do it
1: all right we're talking about uh you know politics in this time of year and of course we're heading back to school this week which is a huge issue for parents and for students of course and for teachers but there's a lot that parents need to know here rob and i guess we're really going to hear about this when report card time rolls around
4: Right. Report cards uh, and the contentious sort of decisions the government have made uh, this year about it uh, will really be felt by parents. If you were uh, thinking that your child was going to come home with a report card with a A or a B or a C or those kind of letter grades, this is the year the government has changed that for grades, uh, you know, kindergarten to grade nine. You will not get those letter grades uh, for your child's report cards this year. You're going to get something different, emerging developing, proficient, extending. Those are the terms that will replace the letter grades. Uh, This has been slowly kind of rolled out since some curriculum changes a few years ago. Half of the province uh, already has this. The entire province will have it this year. So you will only get letter grades if you are in grades uh, 10 to 12. And, you know, Opinions vary about this move, but when government consulted with a, a bunch of the different uh, stakeholders in this uh, last year, actually a couple of years ago now, they got a pretty clear response from teachers, students, and parents. There's more than 4,000 of them in a survey saying they didn't like this idea. They don't, they don't like this move. They're not satisfied with the way government's doing it because it comes with uh, learning updates throughout the year. Uh, a couple of which are in writing, which I guess are what report cards used to be, uh, and those changes don't really reflect, uh, I think, what some people are hoping for uh, out of the system. And so the government said, "Thank you very much for your input. Uh, we're going to do it anyways." This, you know, being a government that used to consult over everything under the sun, um, do you want to go after ticket scalping? Yes or no? Let's do, you know, <laughs> a year of consultation on it. Right. But this year they do years. consultation; they just do it anyways. This
1: has been years in the making,
4: though. Sure, it has. It has. And, you know, educators say that it, you know, provides a, a clearer sort of path for students, where it it allows uh, a, a more contextual idea than just letter grades. And it's the evolution of the process. And critics say it encourages mediocrity. It's hard to tell where students are at or or where they need improvement. Everything is kind of, you know, sort of sounds positive on paper. Uh, it, I guess it'll depend on on how you feel about it uh, when your, your child's r- report card or learning update arrives home, but uh, it's an interesting and, and major change parents will see this year.
1: Right. Is this one thing you're going to be keeping an eye on? Because I feel like th- there's a lot here for high school students to process, especially since you're talking about how is this going to impact their admission to post-secondary if that's what they want to do and how are they going to measure that? And And I just feel like there's still so many questions about
4: this. There are, and it's political too, because BC United is saying this is stupid, uh, and we intend to reverse this, and we don't think that this is the way that that should go. Stick with the letter grades, which is an interesting stance, and I think may in fact you know generate some some support. Whether it, it's a big part of um, you know what they are saying this school year, or they're going to wait and see a little bit of of what parents think of this, but there is a clear political divide on this as well, where it, it may become an issue. That the government moved too quickly, you know, I don't know. It's hard. They've, they've been moving slowly, but they moved without full buy-in from people, anyways. So you can say that, and uh, they're going to have to see how it goes in in the months ahead.
1: Right, because I know this is like a, a trend thing. This has been going on for years. Wasn't it the previous BC Liberal government that started this process?
4: Yeah, so it started under twenty in twenty sixteen uh, as part of a curriculum modernization right. as a pilot project. So it spans the two governments. Yeah,
1: okay. So we're gonna still wait and see what happens. Like you have a, a daughter in school, Rob. Like as a parent, how do you feel about that?
4: Yeah, and she had been getting these emerging, developing, proficient, extending grades. I found it a little difficult to totally understand until you sort of. try. I know that going to the. Uh, talking to other parents and and the student-teacher uh, kind of meetings and uh, parent-teacher meetings, some people tried to assign the letter grades to them. They're like, okay, well, emerging is really, you know, kind of uh, like D and C and, you know, developing is the C and proficient is the B and extending is the A. doesn't really work like that. But I think for a lot of us who are raised in that system, we still try to shoehorn the letter grades into this uh, and uh, it's going to be an adjustment for a lot of parents. Grades 10, 11, and 12 still get the letter grades because they are looking for college admission, university admission, that post-secondary kind of grading system remains there. But for everybody else, we're going to have to get used to trying to understand what uh, developing and proficient means um, and uh, maybe for better or for worse, depending on where you are uh, on this debate. Right.
1: So the grade nine class this year is the one that it 's going to be a huge transition because they would have had letter grades in grade eight they 're not going to have letter grades this year, and then they 're going to have mm-hmm. letter grades again next year when they go to grade ten
4: yeah, free year, do whatever you want I mean that's basically <laughs> no don't oh wait rob don't wait. do not
1: do not tell grade nine students to do whatever they want
4: <laughs> <laughs> It will be an adjustment for them for sure, and you know it, uh, parents students themselves weren 't even really happy with it in the government 's consultation, although not many of them participated, but I think that the adjustment. Mm when you try to grade yourself um, is is harder with this system too.
1: It is going to be hard. I feel like this is the big one for us to keep an eye on uh, this upcoming school year. Rob, thank you for that.
4: Okay, take care.
1: You too. That is Rob Shaw, political correspondent for Czech News.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Today is a holiday, right? It is Labor Day weekend. We know about this as the kind of last official weekend of summer, the long weekend of summer, the last one. But why do we have it off? Have you ever wondered about that? Like, where did Labor Day come from? Well, in the United States, the first U.S. Labor Day happened back in 1882, and it was President Grover Cleveland who established it as a holiday in 1894. But what about us here in Canada? Where did Labor Day come from? Why do we even have this as a holiday? Well, to talk about this with us this morning, Dr. Stephen Tufts is with us, a professor of labor geography at York University. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm actually at the Labor Day Parade right now. Ah, okay. Good to know. So tell me about the Labor Day Parade. What is the origin of our Labor Day?
5: Well, I mean, as you said, it has a long history, and it really grew out of wanting some recognition for the shorter workday movements in the late 1800s. And by the 1890s, it became formally recognized as a holiday, a statutory holiday in most jurisdictions in Canada. Uh, for workers. Now, interesting little note is that Labor Day was actually, and some some people see it as a compromise that the government and employers made with workers, because there was a strong workers movement at the time trying to make May Day um, the official Labor Day uh, of North America as well. And May Day is still celebrated today, but it's not, of course, an official holiday um, for workers. Okay, so what is the
1: difference then between the two? What was the differentiation?
5: Ah, uh, that's the interesting one. Labor Day is seen as a little bit more formal, uh, as a recognition of the sort of acceptable labor's movement coming out of the struggles for shorter work days. But May Day, the origins of May Day, was uh, developed by the International uh, Workers of the World as a recognition of the Haymarket Massacre that took place in Chicago um, in the at that time. So it was seen as more of a more radical. Uh, demand for May 1st than the labor holiday, which was recognized by the state.
1: Okay, so what was a workday like at that time in the late 1800s that we would need to have a day marking a shorter work week?
5: Well, you got to remember that stru- uh, unions were only made legal uh, in Canada and other jurisdictions at this time before any kind of organization was deemed illegal. So you had the legalization of unions, the forming of larger uh, workers' organizations such as the Knights of Labor, but they were struggling for things today we take for granted, such as shorter work weeks, uh, one day off, and limits on the working day, nine hours and eight hours. So you can imagine being in a position as a worker where you are actually told, it doesn't matter if you're a 12-year-old child or a 60-year-old woman, it does that you have to work a 12-hour shift because the employer in the factory deems it necessary.
1: Okay, so I think we've forgotten a lot about this, though, haven't we? (laughs)
5: Yeah, and the interesting thing about how Labor Day has evolved is that it sort of has peaks and valleys over the last century. Sometimes it just sort of slips into something we think of as a regular holiday. In most places in Canada, it's that last weekend before we have to go back to school or before that summer holiday's end. And it's just seen as another statutory day. But sometimes, uh, when something heats up, people start to remember the what Labor Day was for and what it's meant to celebrate. And when we've had a series of strike activity this summer, possibly some more strike activity in the fall with auto workers, etc., you know, people can be a little bit more militant and actually bring um, something to the Labor Day parade. And from this morning, it looks like a, it's a pretty good uh, turnout um, in Toronto. Anyway, uh, even though the weather's quite warm.
1: Do you think that in 2023, we have seen a bit of a kind of resurgence in labor action?
5: Um, The answer is yes and no to that question. Yes,
1: we have had
5: more strike activity and work stoppages and workers turning back collective agreements and organizing a slight uptick over the pandemic year. We're probably going to lose about two million person days uh, to strikes and work stoppages this year. But compared to the middle 1970s, early 1990s, 80s, sorry, when workers w- were, lo- we were losing 10 million person days per year to strikes with a much smaller labor force. I think we have to sort of hold the militancy in some kind of historical perspective as well.
1: OK, so what does that tell us then if, if the early 80s, you know, late 70s was kind of a hotbed for this? Did things change? Did things improve for the worker over that time? Well, this was a time where
5: there was a lot of attacks on the labor militancy to sort of reassert the power of employers. So you had Ronald Reagan uh, firing all the air traffic controllers. You had Margaret Thatcher uh, Nash- or, sorry, privatizing the coal industry in Britain. You had a lot of attacks on labor at time to push back against that militancy uh, that was threatening profits of labor. The question is, will we ever get to that place again? Well, right now, we are seeing a place where the labor markets are quite tight. Workers have some power. At the same time, there's increased interest rates and inflation, which, of course, drives workers to uh, fight for better uh, wages and working conditions, just as they did in the 70s when we had high pieces, uh, high uh, rates of
1: inflation. Okay, so what do you think people should keep in mind on Labor Day Monday?
5: Well, I think people should enjoy themselves, enjoy time with their friends and their families. Um, it is a day that we uh, is a day off for a lot of people. Not everyone. You get some people, of course, have to work on Labor Day. But I always think it's important that we uh, acknowledge what the roots of the holiday are and realize that it was something that was fought for. Uh, it isn't something that was given to us. Uh, having these days off, having time off, is something that workers have always had to struggle for. Not, it's not something that 's just been given to them because of uh, nice uh, bosses
1: right. people tend to forget that too and and there's still some strike action going on too, right Like just look at the whole Hollywood strike that 's happening
5: Oh yes, I mean, and uh, we've talked about this before uh the, that strike is a long strike um, it's an existential strike because workers are actually fighting for their right to exist in many ways because of the role that AI may play in script writing or. Um, maybe help us not replace professors and radio hosts, but maybe someday that might be possible too. So these workers are struggling to sort of get this uh, technology regulated um, as we go
1: into the future. Right. So guarantees we're still going to be talking about this issue for sure. (laughs) Dr. Tufts, thanks for your time. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Happy Labor Day. Happy Labor Day and enjoy the parade. That is Dr. Stephen Tuss, Professor of Labor Geography at York University. And yes, in some areas, there is still a Labor Day parade. Uh, Lots of history when it comes to Labor Day, as Dr. Tuss is pointing out to us. If you want to weigh in, Simi at CKNW.com.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: It's been around for decades now, but this year's edition of Burning Man, which is a kind of an arts festival in the middle of nowhere in Nevada, is getting a lot of attention, mainly because of the weather and the conditions and the fact that 70,000 people kind of trapped there right now. They can't leave. They've closed the roads in or out because of the muddy, muddy conditions there. And so now it's all over the place. My question is why? Well, that's what we hope Scott Chance is going to help us with this morning. Right, Scott? I,
3: I hope so, because I like I, I'll be f- straight up. I've never been to Burning Man. My wife and I had plans to go and then ended up getting pregnant and thought that it was probably not a good idea. Probably. And now it just hasn't. We haven't been able to go. But we have some very close friends who have been going since the very beginning and they go every year and sometimes they bring their kids and they try to convince us to go with them and stuff. So I've heard all the inside stories. My friend like he runs one of the camps and stuff because like they have these little camps that are kind of like little cities. So I'm very taken with the idea of Burning Man and I um I I'm the type of person that it would attract, you know? Like I would go if we had the resources to. Really? Why? Why? What is it what about it appeals to you? Okay. So, and I I want to preface. I wanted to go to Burning Man like ten years ago, right before we had kids. Now oh, you're I don't now think it's jumped I want to go. You're I think you- it's jumped the shark a bit, right? I think when this is it's very like, convenient for you, Scott. Exactly. I was into it before it was cool, oh, of course. Uh, but I think the thing that has attracted me and so many other people to it is this idea of um, escapism from regular society. It's like we're going to go out into the desert and we're going to do all the drugs we want and be as hedonistic as we want and as crazy as we want for like a week. Gotta tell you, sounds like my nightmare. But it's just this idea of like breaking free and no consequences and you can kind of do whatever you want. And a lot of it is like really peace, love, hippie, you know, and then the other side of it is like drugs and and, um, debauchery and all of that. But they say you have everything there. You want to do early morning yoga classes, you can do that. You want to rave all night, you can do that too. And also they don't
1: operate on cash.
3: Correct. There's no
1: money. It's like bartering or performing or whatever for your your goods.
3: The only thing that you are not allowed to purchase or like like you say barter or ask for is water. Everybody's supposed to be responsible for their own water because they're out in the desert. Everything else is supposed to be given. And some people give away uh, like – I don't know, music or drugs or uh, costumes, bicycles, goods, all that type of thing. Other people give services like there's one woman there. She's a nurse and she set up a hospital because, of course, there's 70,000 people out there for this big event. People end up getting hurt. And she was like, one of the things I will do is provide care for people. And uh, so what's happened now this year is it's in the desert and it's rained so much and flooded there that it, you can see it in the videos. The, the ground has Literally become like cement. There's pictures of big jeeps and trucks, and you know you have to think that it takes months to build this thing. They build these big art installations. This is the the main idea behind Burning Man. If you're not familiar, they build these big art installations. Everybody parties around them for you know a week, and then they burn them all down. It's sort of this idea of saying like we create and then we don't need it, like uh, give it back to the earth or or whatever it kind of is. We've all celebrated it, but at the end, it's all kind of meaningless, I guess. I don't know. But so they have big U-Haul trucks and like stages and, you know, think of like executing something like the Olympics because there is like that level of Right. But they are used to conditions that are very dry and very dusty. So these trucks are like getting stuck in the mud and they can't get out. And the walk from Burning Man out to back to civilization is about five miles. So maybe like eight kilometers. And a lot of people aren't going to leave their stuff behind their tents, their vehicles and stuff. So they're just staying there and they're stuck there and they don't have enough food to sort of last throughout the week. And uh, they're running out of water. And some of them are still just saying, whatever, let's just party. Let's just keep it going. But I think one of the reasons that the rest of us, Simi are so taken with this is because, like I said, when it jumped the shark, Burning Man has sort of become this like, uh, playground for the uber rich, you know? like That's peop- my problem with yes. it. Yes. Yeah. Like people like Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk and a bunch of celebrities and you know, Katy Perry and all these people have famously like flown in to Burning Man, stayed for a week and then flown out. And all of those people now have been helicoptered out of there because they're well, rich sure. and wealthy and stuff. And it just sort of feels like, um, yeah, like rich people cosplaying as poor people for a week because uh, they can afford to, and then going back to their to their normal lives, so and that's why, not what though, it's supposed to
1: be. No, but why is it generating? Do you think so much attention that there are problems at Burning Man? Because it is just getting an outsized
3: level of attention. I think yeah, you're right about that, and I think it's because a lot of us, even though, and I will, I'll speak from my own experience because, like I said, I can relate to it. So there's a part of me that thinks this would be so cool to go to. I want to be one of those cool kids that goes to Burning Man and comes back and sits you down and tells you how I've been enlightened because I've gone to Burning Man. There's an equally sized piece of me, Simmy, that thinks that that is the most ridiculous thing. <laughs> it costs so much money to go. Like the tickets are five hundred and seventy-five dollars, right? You have to bring you have to rent an RV. Yep. A lot of people rent RVs because oh, yeah. you don't want a tent in that heat. And... You have to bring all your own stuff. You, you know, it just it would to for someone here to go and do it would probably cost, you know, five to $7,000 to, to kind of Which execute ridiculous. it. Yeah. And you get so filthy sand everywhere, mud, the whole thing. And I, I understand that that is ridiculous. So the part of me that's like, those people are so silly watching them kind of their, they're like, um, their temple, they're like place where they go to, you know, worship, arts and culture has kind of come crashing down and it feels like this facade is sort of being pulled down and saner heads are kind of prevailing.
1: I don't have a lot of sympathy for the 70,000 people who are stuck there because I keep reading about how this is supposed to be this beautiful self-reliant and whatever community and well all right then but this is something that they have briefed the president on in the United States. And I think, really?
3: Yeah, I mean, so one person has died. And I mean, we don't know the full story there yet. But um, I mean, it could, I suppose it could descend into anarchy pretty quickly. But from all- that be ironic? I know, right? From all accounts though, it sounds like the people that are there are kind of, you know, trying to, to stick it out. And a lot of the stuff that's happening is sort of rumor. But I grabbed a quick clip of the woman that I talked about previous, the nurse who's like set up hospital there listen to her this morning talking about conditions out there on the playa that's what they call it
0: could you guys stop with all of this nonsense i am here on the playa there is no ebola fema's not here ebola's not here we are all having a good time and in fact the man is burning tonight at 9 30. we're burners come rain or shine we actually
1: have all been having a pretty decent time
3: so you know all right
1: great they're having a great time. We can all stop paying attention then.
3: <laughs> I, I don't know. I right? Mean, I, like, I, go, I have, have kind of fun. It's like a reality show. I'm kind of enjoying watching it. That's
1: exactly it. And, you know, I saw a joke about this as well, spreading on social media over the weekend, about the number of Netflix executives oh, and yeah. Prime Video executives and... Just documentary makers that are rushing to go nail this down now because you just know within a few months there'll be some documentary about what happened at
3: Burning Man. Right, this year. like the fire festival, but Burning oh, Man that's style. Exactly
1: what it is. It's the fire festival all over again. Right. We're just waiting for the spectacle. That's all we're totally. doing. So next year, I think we
3: should plan to go as like a you show, go, a show retreat. You
1: go <laughs> and tell us all about it. <laughs> okay. Thanks for that, Scott. This is Mornings with Simi. a tough couple of weeks ahead for parents getting your kids back into the routine of a new school year, that whole getting them up and out the door at an early hour. I do not miss that. And there's more to it than just, you know, inconvenience here too. It's about their performance. It's about their well-being. More than 70% of high schoolers and younger children are said to not get an adequate amount of sleep. And experts say that contributes to their performance in school, right? So the importance of establishing a bedtime routine is critical at this time of year. So we thought, let's get some help with this, not just for the kids, but for you adults out there too. So Lindsay Weipalmer is with us now, a certified child sleep consultant and behavioral specialist and owner of AB Sleep. Lindsay, thanks very much for being
6: here. Hi, Simi. Thanks so much for having me. You must be a good sleeper. Well, <laughs> you know, um I'm a medium sleeper. I recognize the importance of it, but I think myself and a lot of other sleep coaches will tell you we also have to tell ourselves to go to bed
1: when uh-huh. it's time. Okay, you know? so what is yeah. your
6: bad habit then? Um staying up too late. I'm a night owl. So becoming a parent changed um, you know, how much time I get from when I go to bed, which I would prefer was 12 or 1. And obviously, my children waking me up at seven, which or earlier, um, which wasn't an issue for me before I was a parent, right? So recognizing that I need to go to bed earlier now to have the adequate amount of sleep is was a huge adjustment for me.
1: Right. So this time of year, what are the questions that the most common ones that you get from people, Lindsay?
6: Well, obviously, with school coming back, it's all, a lot about getting back onto some kind of a regular routine after we've all sort of let that slide over the summer months. And the first thing I always tell parents, regardless of what the issue they're calling me for is, whether it's this or something else, is that it's okay that you're in this space. Like, I don't want anyone getting down on themselves just because they've let the routine slide for the last couple of months. You probably had a lot of fun doing it. Enjoy that time. And now it's time to get back on track. Okay. But if we're thinking about it today, is it a little bit too late? Like, should we have not started maybe last week? Potentially. I don't think anyone would regret starting last week, but I I also don't want anyone, you know, injecting a bunch of guilt into their mind just because they didn't. It's definitely not too late. Okay. And so let's say we're
1: starting today. What do we need to keep in mind?
6: First of all, it's light. Um, You know, the sun is still going down somewhere around eight o'clock where I am. And so it's really hard to ask kids to go to bed before the sun has gone to bed. So It's important to make sure, it doesn't have to be a cave in the room. A lot of people will tell you it has to be an absolute cave, but I just say it has to be pretty dark. If you can stand in their room with the door closed and the shades drawn and you guys can make eye contact, it's probably pretty bright in there. So just throw up something else. It doesn't have to be something you've spent a bunch of money on. You can get paper blinds, you can even use tin foil. I have seen it all, cardboard, um, just to test out, does it make a difference when I darken it in here a little bit? And then you can make a more permanent purchase when you know that it actually is something that's helping your family. So light is number one for me, uh, just to make sure that kids understand, hey, it is dark out and we are asking you to, you know, wind down now and stay in bed. That's number one. Okay, what's number two? Recognizing how much sleep your kiddo needs. So a lot of the time, um, we think that we need to push our child to this point of exhaustion before they're ready for bed. And I often end up telling parents, I actually never want you to see your kiddo at that point. I shouldn't say never, there are always extenuating circumstances, but on an average day, we are looking to get our kiddos into bed before they seem really tired. And so when we are waiting for them to look exhausted, we've probably pushed them at least an hour past when they should have been tucked in. So recognizing that we're looking for signs to to see that they have enough sleep. Are they well rested throughout the day? are they relatively in a pretty good mood? Do they seem like they are able to manage life relatively well for their age? So if we're talking about a three-year-old, I'm still expecting to see tantrums regardless of whether or not they've had enough sleep. If we're talking about a six-year-old and they seem to have a hard time managing, we have a pretty good chance that they are not getting the amount of sleep that they need. And so when we talk about number of hours, it's really tough to say because every kiddo is different. But if we're looking at like the six to 13 year range, they probably need somewhere in the 10 to 12 hour a night range.
1: Okay, that's a lot. That is a lot then for parents because like that fight to get kids to bed, especially if they're Mm -hmm. getting up at say seven in the morning, and you're saying they got to be in bed like at eight o'clock. That's a challenge for a lot of parents.
6: It definitely is a challenge, yeah. So another thing that I like to add into that is making sure that we're always talking positively about sleep. It's not going to remove the bedtime battles at all, but it makes it less about I'm the parent and these are the rules and more about, hey man, I love you and I want to do what's best for you and we it's my job to help you be as healthy as you possibly can be. And sleep is something that does really good things for our body. And talk about what those things are so that eventually the motivation is coming from inside the child intrinsic motivation rather than just feeling like it's some rule that's being forced upon them that they do need to go to bed No, when you sleep well, you can jump higher, you can hug tighter, you can focus better in school if we're talking to the older children. You can probably notice that you're better at that sports activity that you love. Whatever it is that you know is going to motivate your child, sleep probably helps them do that thing better. So, what about teenagers?
1: Let's, Lindsay, we got (laughs) to talk about teenagers here because this
6: is all well and good
1: for younger kids. But really, the struggle here is for teens because they also do not want to go to bed early. They're probably night owls too, are feeling like it, but they've got to get up early.
6: Yeah. And I sympathize with teens in a big way because I can really remember um, just never being ready for bed earlier. At, like I said before, I'm a night owl. And so my body was not ready to fall asleep in time to wake up before school and, and be alert and active. Unfortunately, we do see a lot of movement towards you know, high school starting earlier and earlier, which I definitely encourage parents to stand up against. It's not as bad in Canada as it is in the States in certain places, but um, of course we need to actually just help kids understand, okay, well, here's the number of hours of sleep that your body should have approximately. And if we subtract what time you need to be getting up to get ready for school, this is the time that you should be in bed. Uh, And beyond that, once we equip our teenagers with the right amount of information, it's pretty hard to force things. Um, But, you know, uh, giving them the tools to make those decisions themselves is step one, for sure.
1: I wonder if maybe this is something that's best tackled all together. You know, if if parents recognize that, yeah, your sleep could be better too. So to say to your teen, hey, let's all try to get on the right page for this year. So we're all going to do this together.
6: Absolutely, Simi. And it's funny that you say that because it's not even for teens for me. Whenever I even work with a three-year-old, I'm bringing in a family sleep plan. Here we are. We want to be better sleepers together because we recognize that for our family, this is a good choice.
1: Okay, so that's some good advice there. But I guess, as you said, with teens, it's about talking to them about it. And then you really
6: can't force them, can you? You really can't. And again, that's also the case for a three-year-old. You can give them the boundaries and and the the reasons why we're doing this. And you can set them up to make the right expectation. But you mm-hmm. actually can't force a baby or a toddler or a teenager to actually fall asleep. How do that's you feel about naps? How do you feel about
1: naps for like teenagers and for older people, like for adults?
6: Well, if it's working, it's working is my general um stance on everything if it's if it's not causing an issue then and you're enjoying it and you're happy with things going this way then i'm pro anything nap i'm pro glass of wine whatever it is um not for the children for the parents um right thank you for that yes oh sure um but we there are so many cultures around the world that take naps and it's part of what they do and so if you find that sneaking a small nap into your day is enriching your life go for it. Hmm. However, if it's, a, if it's more of a, of a survival thing and there's something that could be adjusted maybe to your nighttime sleep or what time you're going to bed, what time you're waking up and you feel that that would serve you better than the nap, then I would take a look at that first.
1: All right. And Lindsay, very quickly, how many hours of sleep do you get a night? I like to get eight. Sometimes it's less. <laughs> I was going to say, wow.
3: you get Last eight. Last night I, it was
1: not eight. <laughs> I'm impressed. I'm impressed. Lindsay, thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Sammy. That's Lindsay Y. Palmer, certified child sleep consultant and behavioral specialist. I mean, eight hours—that's ambitious to get eight hours of sleep a night. I am curious, though, how many hours of sleep do you get? I get, oh, I'll say between six and seven. Seven on a good night, but you know, six is the minimum. Somewhere between the two on an average night, a little bit more on the weekends. Probably seven for sure on the weekends. But what about you? How many hours of sleep do you need to function? Seven? Six? You tell me. This is Mornings with Simmy. Time to check in on our BC Lions. I had a pretty good weekend. Thirty-four twenty-five win in Montreal. Coach Rick Campbell is with us. Morning, coach.
7: Good morning. Happy Labor Day.
1: Happy Labor Day to you too. Hey, before we get started, I gotta ask you, do you have a favorite football movie?
7: favorite football movie that's a good question because we're giving away bc lions tickets today think about that well
1: we're giving away bc lions tickets today and you know we all want to come and see your game coming up on september 16th uh but we're going to do this with like inspirational football movies and i thought well you must have one
7: yeah i'd have to think about that one
1: (laughs) all right i wouldn't be surprised if you told me it was rudy because that's a great movie
7: yeah, Rudy's a good one. You're right about that.
1: Yeah, I know. So many good ones to choose from. All right, you think about that, but in the meantime, let's talk about the game on the weekend. How resilient was this team?
7: Yeah, it was an exciting game. If you're a fan watching football, there's no question. That wasn't a very exciting game, but um, that was the biggest thing for me is we were much more typical of ourselves, just our spirit and our fight and our competitiveness. And um, both teams were making plays, but uh, we made the plays at the end when it mattered and it, it was really a big win for us
1: okay when you say it was more typical did you feel that perhaps the team needed to kind of get back to playing like that
7: yeah we kind of thought in the Hamilton game we were a little bit flat for whatever reason it wasn't the plan and uh it, we just didn't seem to have that uh juice or whatever you want to call it and um our, our guys did a great job it's a long trip to Montreal it's a long flight out there but our guys uh took care of themselves and got ready to go and Montreal's a good team and um, it just was big. It just sets us up for the last six games to be in a in a good position to to compete the rest of the way.
1: Okay, so what was it that they did better in this game?
7: Well, just like you said, we were we, it was really compete. It was a really competitive game, and both teams were making plays. And w- when they would make a play, our guys wouldn't flinch. They would hang in there and and keep grinding away and have that belief that we feel if we keep working, we'll get the job done. And and credit to our players, they did it.
1: Right, because we saw a, a great performance as well from Vernon Adams Jr.
7: Yeah, he was re- he was really really on it and um, made made some really big throws, but he also used his feet. So um, he ran for some first downs that were really important, and he you know, he looked like a guy playing the game that he wasn't going to allow his team to lose, and um, he he uh, was a good leader that way.
1: Okay, so Winnipeg lost in overtime as well yesterday. What kind of a difference does that make?
7: Yeah, that's that makes things even more exciting. So it puts everybody closer in the standings. So uh, Winnipeg's nine and three, and we're eight and four. So we're only one game behind them, and uh, we play them one more time at BC Place in October, which will be exciting. And then it puts Saskatchewan closer to us too. So. The last, we only have six games to go, which is amazing to me. Time's flying by, it but uh, makes those makes those six games obviously really important.
1: And four of those are at home, so four of these next six games are going to be at home. Um, how much of a difference does that make?
7: I think it's great. You know, number one, we like playing in front of our fans, but also as you go through the grind of the end of the season, is you know we're not going to be on the road as much, so it'll be nice to be sleep in our own beds and, and play at home, but. Um, Obviously, they're still going to all be tough games, and so we just need to be ready to go for it.
1: All right, so you are ready. Well, we look forward to it. Thanks so much for joining us this morning.
7: All right, I'll still think about my movie today. Yeah, day, I, expect up with an one. I expect an <laughs>
1: <Okay>. answer. <laughs> okay, thanks. That is Rick Campbell, head coach of the BC Lions. Of course, they won 34-25 in Montreal over the weekend, which is great. And as he mentioned, they're heading into a, a bye week now. So it's the second bye week of the season, but four of their next six games, well, the remaining six games, are at home. This is Mornings with Simi there's a lot of stereotypes when it comes to dealing with homelessness and what happens when you give people money to deal with some of those issues. And those are stereotypes and misperceptions that one UBC researcher has been working on, actually. And our Scott Schantz is with us this morning to talk more about that. Hi.
3: Hi. Yeah. Hi, Simi. This is a really, really interesting story, and it's getting a lot of attention, uh, both locally, nationally, and even internationally. So a group of researchers at UBC have been looking into this, into like our bias towards uh, unhoused people and what actually can make a difference in the lives of unhoused people. And uh, essentially, I'll just give you the quick Coles Notes version. What they did is took a group of 50 unhoused people and gave each of them $7,500. That total is $375,000. So that's how much they spent on on giving a group of unhoused people this money to see what they would do with it and how it would improve their quality of life. Now, before we tell you what sort of happened, they also surveyed a large group of people about what they thought these people would do with the money. 81% of people right away thought drugs, booze, alcohol, I don't know. Like, just basically, are going to spend it on, you know, the things that have kept them in these unhoused um, sort of cycles. But that is not the case. And over ninety percent of the cases uh, that led to a dramatic reduction in being un in, in the unhoused lifestyle. So essentially, people spent far less days unhoused, less days in shelters. They had money to uh, pay for security deposits. Uh, you know, buy resources that they needed, clothing. food food, all of those type of things, the same things that you and I would buy if we were you know, sort of living check to check and needed to spend that money on those type of things. So it's really interesting how it kind of flies in the face. And some follow-up research has even sort of said that despite what the article has found, many of those people who thought that they would spend the money on alcohol and drugs still think that, even though the research has been done to say that this is not what they're going to spend it on people still think, well, we're not going to give them money. That's the wrong answer when it feels, I mean, it's a small group, 50 people, $7,500 each, but like over 90%, it's pretty clear that like this is what they would use the money for. So I talked to Rowan Burge. She's the provincial director of the BC Poverty Reduction Coalition. So she has like a vested interest in how these type of things go. And I asked her, like, what, like, what is your takeaway from a, a survey like this and how we sort of move forward and tackling the problem of uh, homelessness and unhoused people?
8: Yeah. So, you know, I think it's a really telling piece that kind of tackles some of the, you know, anti-homelessness stigma that we see. Um, You know, one of the biggest barriers to housing for unhoused people is income. And so being able to provide people with the money so they can afford things like a damage deposit, for instance, like a phone so they can call the landlord back, like all of these small barriers that exist for people who are sleeping outdoors, um, you can really tackle those barriers with a very easy methodology and that's just cash. Um, Cash can really help people um, access uh, a safe place to stay and so it's a really great very simple um, approach um, but a very effective one and it's nice to see that reflected in the study.
3: It sort of feels like um, it, it, this like universal truth, you know, it, it sort of reminds me that, oh, we are all the same. Like, what do I need the most? What makes the most difference in my quality of life? Cash. And what would make the most difference in, in unhoused <laughs> people's quality of life? Cash. Why? Because we're all humans and we're all sort of struggling okay. with the same thing. Some of us are just kind of better than others. Um, an interesting thing that I saw in the article was this note that, mm-hmm. um, when people predicted what they would spend the money on, eighty-one percent of people assumed or predicted that the money would be used on alcohol, drugs, and tobacco. Um, why do you think it is that we're so quick to assume the worst about people who are unhoused?
8: Yeah, unfortunately I think, you know, for many many years it's been much more easy to sort of problematize or blame people experiencing homelessness rather than, you know, the social systems and supports that have failed to provide safe, adequate, affordable housing for people. Um and I think, you know, with the cost of living increasing for many folks with the affordability crisis with the pandemic, I think more and more people are starting to understand that housing is really expensive and not everybody is making enough to make that work. And so, you know, this idea that you can just really address the housing crisis issue by giving people the incomes that they need. You know, I think CERB was also a good example of like when people received CERB during the pandemic, the poverty rates went very far down, which is incredible. It's like such a basic premise. And yet, um, you know, I think that people are so used to being uh, sort of like putting the blame on individual people experiencing these problems rather than looking at the systemic social problems that exist sort of on a wider level that are actually the cause of these problems.
3: Yeah. And maybe while we're on it, can you can you talk a little bit about some of those problems that you think exist on a wider level? Because it does feel like it's so easy for us to um, point fingers and to say, like, oh, if we had this, if this did happen, then that we wouldn't have this issue with homelessness. Or if only our government did that thing, when really, I think that oftentimes these issues are a lot more complicated than that
8: hmm. Absolutely. You know, I think one of the big issues across Canada right now is housing, affordable housing for people. Um, and one of the major, you know, sort of problems is that, you know, we've really focused on market housing and letting the market kind of determine the cost of things. And so affordable housing has become much less accessible to many people, many families, uh, many individuals across, across the whole country. And part of that is because we haven't been building non-market affordable housing and social housing programs enough really over the past Kind of several decades the funding and investment into housing has gone down significantly into the public housing sphere and now it has caused this problem where housing is much more difficult to come by and so there's a few kind of basic you know basic sort of policy areas that we would suggest would really help support people one would be build affordable housing Um, another would be things like providing a baseline of economic security for folks so you know in british columbia the income and disability assistance rates are still well below the poverty line. So if you do find yourself needing support in terms of income, you're still only going to be making far below what you would actually need to sort of afford your basic needs. Um, But of course, all of these issues are interconnected. And um, I think it takes you know, investment and a sort of systemic approach to tackle these problems that have been been happening and and continue to exist over long periods of time now.
3: I found this article kind of like you said, very um, uh, liberating, empowering. Uh, Could you speak to like maybe like what uh, one of your takeaways is from a study like this?
8: Yeah. One of the things that is really heartening and liberating about this study is that, again, it reminds us that giving people the resources they need, giving people the agency on their lives to self-determine, know what they're going to do if we trust people to to make good decisions for themselves they oftentimes will you know people who are experiencing homelessness people who right now are in fact people and that's a really important thing to remember and i think that you know we've done collectively as a society a good job of dehumanizing people experiencing homelessness and so i think remembering that we need to continue to humanize these people these are people individuals humans who are in a bad situation where they can't afford housing or don't have access to housing and that we should in fact be caring for people and and treating them as humans and giving them the agency that they need to to make these kind of good choices in their lives uh, for the better
3: if people are listening and Mm -hmm. they want to find out more or lend a hand or um get involved where could people start where's a good place to start or get more information about bc poverty reduction coalition or other um, organizations that might um, might point them in the right direction here
8: Absolutely, yeah. So, the BC Poverty Reduction Coalition has a website. We're on social media. If you just search BC Poverty Reduction Coalition, uh, we'd love to, yeah, get folks involved. And then also, you know, there's many organizations doing really good work all across BC and all across other provinces and territories and lands. So, I I would encourage people to get involved in your local community and, and connect with, you know, there's many, many service providers. There's food banks, there are shelters, there's like many other opportunities to get involved in your local community as well. So we really encourage people to do that.
3: That's Rowan Burge. She's the provincial director of the BC Poverty Reduction Coalition. And I think that oftentimes, Simi, we look at these issues and we think, oh, it's so complicated. It's multifaceted and we're going to do this and it's not going to work and we're going to create sustainable housing and people are just going to trash it and blah, 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 blah. When really it's like, I think that they just need what everybody needs.
1: Right. I'm so curious about this because you're right about people still wanting to believe the original thought. Right. Right? Because I I'm, I'm, I got emails on that as you were talking about it. I was getting emails from people who say, yeah, I read about it, but I still don't fully believe it. What is that disconnect, do you
3: think? Yeah, I think that we have this like this unwillingness to forgive people for the fact that they let themselves get into a bad spot, you know? I didn't didn't do that with what I was given. We all sort of started from, at least here in in the Lower Mainland, we all sort of started from a level playing field, or at least we think we do, whether or not that's true. And it's like, well, I didn't have to, you know, take Mm -hmm. a handout and end up on the street, so why should you get a handout? And we focus on that instead of focusing on, well, it will, it will actually make my life better if these people are off the street, but we don't focus on that. We focus on the cause, you know, yeah. instead of like the end result, which I also find so, so hard to, you know, for people it's, to accept. It's also about people who are reaching out for the help,
1: because if people are reaching out for the help and say that I want my life to change, then absolutely we need to help those people, because if they've got that willingness to change their life we should help them
3: do that. I totally, I totally agree. And, you know, we do have resources to do this. And like so many of these things have pointed out, like it, it, makes the, it makes the city a better place, right? It's, it's easier to go downtown and to play in parks and, and you know, experience yeah. the culture of the city when we don't have these problems.
1: It, it, but I do think that difference is, and, and what people are looking for is like, oh, well, why doesn't this work on a bigger scale? It's about... Helping the people who, when you ask them, do you want help? They say yes. Yeah. Because not everybody, you know, to be honest, not everyone is ready for that help.
3: For sure. And, you know, a a system like this is not going to absolutely solve the problem. I get that. But I think that it is a bold and uh, a powerful step in the right direction. All right, Scott, thank you very much for that. Yeah. That is our Scott Shots. If you'd like
1: to weigh in, send me at cknw.com.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Every once in a while here on the show, we come across a story or we talk about a story where I ask myself, how come I didn't know about this already? Well, this next one definitely falls into that category. It takes us way back to the early years of the Cold War and a U.S. Air Force B-36 bomber carrying a nuclear bomb departed from an Alaskan military airbase. It was supposed to go to San Francisco and then Texas. It didn't turn out that way though, and this is now a part of BC history that we are going to learn about. Amanda Fallat Huska joins us now, reporter in Northern BC for the Tai who's been writing about this. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks to me. What happened to
9: this plane? Well, (laughs) that's kind of the question. It it was flying south along the B.C. coast. It had strict orders not to go inland and not to enter Canadian airspace. But it was a frigidly cold night. Um, Some of its engines, the whole plane started to ice up. Three of its six engines burst into flames, and the pilot realized he was going to have to ditch the plane. Um, But he was carrying this nuclear weapon. So the question was what to do with the bomb. So he flew out over the Pacific Ocean, somewhere, I think, just south of Haida Gwaii, jettisoned the bomb, according to official U.S. documents, um, and blew it up using traditional explosives. So it would have blown up somewhere, you know, between where the plane was com- coming down towards the ocean and the ocean itself, and scattered across the sea. And then he turned inland, hoping that he could drop his crew somewhere over the B.C. coast where they, um, they could be found by rescuers.
1: And is that what happened? Were they rescued?
9: Twelve of seventeen crew members were, were rescued in the days that followed. And as they parachuted out, the pilot, who was the last to leave the plane, or said he was the last to leave the plane, set the plane to autopilot. So it was meant to do a big arc over Princess Royal Island, head out to sea, and then they thought it would continue to lose altitude and eventually plunge into the ocean. And that's what everybody thought happened for about three years. And then in 1953, um, the Canadian Royal Air Force was searching for a lost airplane somewhere north of Smithers, and they came across, across the wreckage about 350 kilometers north of where the plane was last seen going down and, and thought it was about to plunge into the ocean.
1: Okay, well, that's a very different story, right? And for the U.S. military to kind of lose an atomic bomb, I mean, why was this not a bigger story?
9: Well, a lot of it was kept secret for a lot of years. You know, like when the Canadian government was out there searching for these um, these lost crew members... Nobody knew that there had been an atomic bomb on board. That didn't come out until the 1980s. Um, And so the question is, how did this plane that was having severe mechanical failure end up 350 kilometers north and hundreds of feet higher than it was last seen, you know, sinking like a stone, according to the pilot? So one theory is that one of the crew members may have stayed on board and tried to Nobody really knows where he would have been going, but maybe heading back north to Alaska. Um, Yeah, but the the U.S. government has never officially confirmed that. And then the question is, if he did do that, and he risked his life to do that, what was on board that was so important?
1: Well, this is what I'm wondering too then. So do we really know about what the the cargo was?
9: The U.S. government has been very secretive about it. They have revealed very few details about it. Um, the atomic bomb that is said to have been jettisoned, it didn't have its plutonium core. So without the plutonium core, it it couldn't have created an atomic reaction. Um, That's according to the U.S. government. They say that there was a dummy core, so a a lead core that was used for training purposes, and that the, the amount of radiation from that bomb would have been minimal when they jettisoned it over the ocean. But there's several theories about what may have occurred. Like, according to the pilot, when they first tried to open the bomb bay doors and release the bomb, they didn't open because the airplane was was all iced up. They had to try a couple of times, and then it did open. So there's a question around, like, did it actually open? Or were they having trouble getting rid of this bomb? Could there have been a second bomb? Or the third question is, did they still have this plutonium core on board, not a dummy core, that they were trying to take to safety somewhere. But the US government's been very secretive about that. Um, A lot of those official documents are still classified. So it's hard to know if we'll ever know.
1: So 70 years later, Amanda, and, and there's still not answers on this. Like, that just seems so bizarre, doesn't it?
9: Mm -hmm. It does. And, you know, I think the the U.S. government's official story that they they dropped the bomb. There was really no risk. Um, On the one hand, it does make sense, but it, it brings up a lot of questions around, well, why the secrecy? And you know, how did this airplane end up way, you know, hundreds of kilometers from where it was supposed to have plunged into the ocean if it was in such, such rough shape? And if somebody was flying it, what was their motivation to uh, to take it there?
1: So what kind of reaction did you get when you started kind of digging around about this and asking some questions?
9: Uh, You know, I I didn't go to the US Air Force, so it's hard to know what their reaction would have been. But I spoke to Joy Allen. She's a a local up in the Kispiox Valley, she lives about 50 kilometers south of where the airplane was eventually found. And a lot of locals still talk about this because some locals were hired as guides to take the U.S. Air Force in there. After they found the wreckage, the U.S. Air Force actually went in, blew up what remained of the airplane and actually set off explosives in order to create a bit of a landslide and tried to bury what was left. Um, and, And the locals just talk about the secrecy of it all. You know, even the guides that took the U.S. Air Force team in on horseback, they um, they were kept well away from the site. They weren't told anything. They don't know what, if anything, the Air Force crew may have taken out with them. That was back in 1954, so four years after the crash and a year after the actual crash site was found. Um, I, I think there's still just a lot of questions out there. And, and Joy, who I spoke to, she grew up in the valley. You know, she's heard these stories for decades. And she herself, back in the late 90s, thought that she would do an expedition in there to check out the the crash site and couldn't get any answers. And when she started asking questions, she had a friend in the U.S. military who started asking questions. and And he had military guys showing up at his door asking him what his interest in all of this was. So, you know, going back to at least the late 90s. The U.S. government was still trying to keep a lid on whatever happened up there, you know, whatever was taken out of the site. Um, There are rumors that maybe a crew member was the body of a crew member was found with the with the airplane. Um, But whether we'll ever know, I don't know.
1: You mentioned the late 90s there, didn't they? And you write about this. The Canadian government actually visited the site to make sure like we'll Mm -hmm. see what was going on here.
9: Right. Well, nobody, even the Canadian government didn't know until the 1980s that there had been a nuclear weapon involved. And some environmental groups started raising concerns that there could be radiation at the site and that maybe we should check that out. So the Canadian government sent a crew in to investigate in 1997. And this was the first time that anyone had been in there since um, in 1956, a group of surveyors had stumbled across it, but it had been, you know, 40 years nobody had been in. So they went in and they checked it out. Um, they found no radiation, so potentially a signal that there, there was no plutonium, there was nothing, you know, no cause for concern. Um, but it kind of opened the door to looting because I think people in the region became aware that the crash site was there. Right. They want to a souvenir, it was, it, they want to go see what's going on. Totally. And one group from Terrace, B.C., um, started making regular trips in and taking a lot of this stuff. And this is, this is a B.C. Um, cultural heritage site. It's, it's protected by uh, heritage laws. And, and I think their intentions were good, but they started salvaging stuff from the crash with the intention of maybe creating a museum or a display somewhere in Terrace. That never happened. So all these artifacts artifacts have actually been scattered around the region. Um, one thing that made it to the United States was the birdcage, which is the lead-carrying ah. case for a plutonium core. Um, so somebody who went in, loaded it into a helicopter, drove it across the border in their car, took it all the way back to Connecticut, and then... Opened it, um, apparently not even knowing if it if it could be radioactive, um, but apparently found it empty. So again, we don't we don't know what was in there.
1: Well, that's what makes your story so fascinating, Amanda. Thanks for telling us all about it this morning.
9: Yeah, I appreciate your interest.
1: Well, Amanda Follett-Hoskett has written all about this case. It's on the thai.ca. Please check the story out. It's a fascinating little bit about BC history that you may not have known about. I hadn't heard about this story, and she writes about it in a lot of detail. So check that out at the thai.ca.